Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Howdy folks, got a very, very special guest today on the Designer Maker Revolution, Brian Parks, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Jam Factory Craft and Design Centre in Adelaide. There are so many creative lives that have been moulded by the jam, having been going through there or being associated in the galleries or the shops or whatever else the Jam Factory does, and it's a lot. Brian Parks has been an artist himself, Certainly knows his stuff. Really super interesting man. Ryan Parks, welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Thanks, Adrian. It's good to be talking. It is. It's really good to be talking. Have you ever felt that you're a revolutionary? Oh, I guess, you know, being involved in the arts, given that I grew up in a house where, you know, my, my dad was a slaughterman, the whole <laughs> idea of a career in, in, in the arts, and particularly craft and design, was probably pretty revolutionary. Did you ever feel like you should go and join the slaughterhouse? I, I did. I did on occasion as a kid. You know, visit the Killer Fatty Abattoir in Launceston. What's it called? Killer Fatty. It was called, and, and it wasn't. You know, that was actually the name. I don't think it was a, a derivative of. You know, the Killer, killer Fatty, fatty I think it was, Abattoir. Uh, yeah, Killer Fatty. Oh, Fatty. Um, yeah, right. And. Uh, yeah, the, the, there's some there's some images etched firmly into the mm, into the psyche, psyche. from from, mm. uh, from some of those things. And uh, but you know, I, I was I was the first kid in um, a person in my extended family to go to university, and I went to art school. Mm. You know, and and a lot of my friends who were at art school were, you know, you know their their parents were kind of perhaps frustrated that they weren't you know doing law or medicine or some other more useful thing. Mm. Whereas my parents were incredibly proud that their son had gone to university. Yeah, right. So it didn't matter that it was art. Have you got brothers and sisters that went no, to? No, no, no. I'm, I'm uh, an only child, and, and an adopted only child, in fact. Um, and yep. so... Is that a thing for you? Not really. Being an only child is interesting, you know, and, and particularly now that I've got two kids. Yeah. You know, trying to understand sibling stuff is kind of you know, interesting. You're probably trying to understand it too. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not really. I mean, I, I think perhaps, you know, given the kind of stuff I do in my day job, one of the things about being an only child is that you, you have to learn to kind of navigate people and situations. You have to kind of develop the sort of emotional empathy to sort of slip into any different kind of circumstance or at least I felt I did, and, and that's that's something that I... You probably had to deal with adults as well, right from the go That's right, yeah, mm. yeah. So, and in fact, I, was, and I meant kind of adults, mm. um, yeah, mm. yeah. You know, read, read things in a way to kind of work God. out which, how, how to act, how it to behave. Sounds stressful. Oh, I don't remember it being stressful. Mm. <laughs> so whereabouts in Tasmania? 
Uh, so I grew up in the north of the state, uh, little country towns. I went to school in Launceston, but we lived mm. uh, various times near in towns like Longford and Hadspen. Spent probably oh, six or seven years from when I was say, six until 12 or so living in caravan parks in, in, a, in, a, in, in a caravans. Good um, God. And this is like so not middle class. <laughs> no, no, um, very far from. No, my, my, my background is, is deep, uh, dark blue collar, and um, I enjoy that I have that history. Keeps me grounded. I, I, I have the great privilege of, you know, interacting, working, being being involved with people in significant kind of situations of power and influence and wealth and that's not where I've come from but I, 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 I like that, that I've in my life had that reign. <laughs> the arts is such a middle-class pursuit. Well it's often perceived that way and, mm. and I do what I do because I, I don't necessarily see it that way. It relies on a lot of middle-class expenditure but it's kind of truly transformative. Mm. You know, there are, you know, my own story is not that remarkable in the arts. There are a lot of people who've come from working class backgrounds in, in theatre. Well, you know, depend. Like you know, music. You, 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 these sort of yeah, maybe across tra tra transformative experiences mm. that, that the arts can can create. I mean, education more broadly, of course, does that. But but there's something about you know the way that arts have been used in rehabilitation for people you know who've, who've fallen from grace you know that you know you see really interesting kind of um yeah transformations and i think that the experiences that some people have that might be tough experiences in some ways in life can kind of help inform really beautiful uh practices you know that i think you know Mm. Great work it says mm. something, right? Mm. And, and, and um, it always does. It has to. You know, the, the, the kind of more interesting the story that you're trying to tell, mm. the kind of, you know, hopefully the more power and resonance that has with an audience. Yeah. Did you always want to be involved in arts right from the go get, or was this something you found, or how did it happen? I think as a kid, I was very good at drawing, and, you know, I could accurately render. You know, and, and out of practice now, but still, you know, pretty much uh, would be pretty comfortable that I could. And you'd get positive reinforcement as a kid in school for things mm. that you were good at. Mm. And so the more positive reinforcement you get, the more you kind of funnel towards certain things. So that feedback about being good at art kind of certainly channeled energy. But I was, you know, I was also, you know, pretty good at science, pretty good at maths, and I was kind of lucky in that. And no, not, not a super high achiever by any means but but you know kind of um you know a capable kind mm. of did you go to the public school system yeah, right through? Yeah, 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 yeah right through and i guess by the time i was in high school you know with the background i had i didn't really appreciate the kinds of careers that existed in in the arts you know i didn't know what a graphic designer was i'd never heard the term mm. you know even when i was in like year 11 12 i, I that, that was not a term that I knew or understood. I, I certainly didn't have a sense of 
architecture as a potential kind of profession. I enrolled in and was accepted into an art school in Hobart thinking that I would be one of two things, that I would either be an art teacher because I had had some art teachers and mm. they'd been important mentors. I wouldn't mind talking about that later. And, or a sign writer, you know, truly. And, and, Tradesperson in and, a sense. Yeah, so, mm. I, so I, I kind of, you know, my frames of reference were not very wide, but I knew that I wanted to kind of be involved in the art thing somehow. And so, so you would have gone to the university and your mind would have been blown. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Completely. That's, that's kind of, you know, in, in 1988, I started at the art school in Hobart, which was then, you know, it was the flash new campus transformed mm-hmm. old IXL jam factories on the waterfront in Hobart. Mm. And they were the years I became who I am, truly. And it was, you know, sort of like, you know, I found my tribe, you know. Um, You're right. And of course, my eyes were open to the whole raft of possibilities of the kind of stuff you could do. Mm. And you know, while I was at art school, I kind of said yes to everything. So I was, you know, organising artist-run space type things and being on boards and organising artist parties and organising staff versus student cricket matches or, you know, you name it, whatever it was. Did you I win? would. Uh, <laughs> I don't think any game actually got played out to conclusion, to be honest. But, um, mm. you know, I remember kegs of beer were involved. <laughs> that was the <laughs> But, you know, and in those days, in that extraordinary kind of facility, we had 24-hour access seven yeah. days a week. Yeah. And, you know, I left home at 17 to go to art school. Yeah. And so I had some pretty rough and ready flatmates. So I kind of more or less lived at the art school. Yeah, right. You know, I would I would go home at midnight, literally, um, yeah. s- sleep, have breakfast, and go back to the art school for certainly the first couple of years. You know, and that and I wasn't the only one. You know, the cohort of us that were. So one of the things you haven't mentioned doing is actually making art. Hmm. No, it's true. And and um, look, I um, I'm doing what I do now because that's where I started. You know, and I, I have a deep empathy for the maker and I miss it at times. I made a conscious decision to give up any kind of personal practice in 2000, so 20 years ago. But but that's still 12 years after you started art school. That's so, right, yeah. that's right. And I, when I was in matriculation college in Tasmania, they have a kind of two year, like Canberra, the two year system mm-hmm. after high school, mm-hmm. separate and it's a bit more it has a kind of more relaxed vibe, so the transition from high school to university has this sort of middle stage, which is yeah. quite interesting. I've repeated, you know, level three art in the second year because I just wanted to do it. It wasn't yeah. going to help me with any uni entry stuff, but the first year I did painting, the second year I did ceramics. I just wanted to do something different and took any of the electives that were on offer and, you know, did photography and various other things. Mm. So when I got to art school, you know, I was, I was interested in ceramics. I, I kind of, in my first year ceramics, I had Les Blakeborough teaching me, you know, yeah. throwing. Um, yeah, he's a pretty famous Penny, dude. Penny Smith teaching me slip casting. Yeah. And um, Lorraine Slaney. Jennings teaching me hand building and Ben mm. Richardson mm. teaching glaze and clay, clay and glaze mm. theory um, in ceramics. They were, you know, an all-star cast. Mm. And the staff across the school at that time were all stellar yeah. people. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what some of the other things were. So I did painting and ceramics because that's what I'd done. I didn't 
again, I didn't know what graphic design was. I didn't, I didn't have any sense of furniture design, you know, which was a workshop I loved, right? And, you know, there's um, still a people in that uh, <laughs> that studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. They were great, great people. Yeah. Um, so during the what the three years of my undergraduate degree, I kind of because I was there so much, I did everything, and I, I kind of. And this is the 80s, right, the late 80s, and I finished mm. in 1990. And the work of that era was dominated by sort of, you know, a kind of postmodern installation-based practice that, mm. you know, for me was increasingly self-referential and looked at that kind of suburban working class background and trying to kind of claim that territory, tell that story, celebrate the everydayness, you know, and a lot of that work was kind of ahead of its time a bit. That's a, that's a sort of zeitgeist that was, you know, it's been for, you know, big for, for some time. But I had a crit one time, I think uh, Charles Green described my work as a kind of suburban Arta Pavera, you know, which I thought was a really nice thing at the time. So I tried very hard for, you know, I, and I, I did a, a, a I did quite complete it, but a master's degree, and you know I had a, a residency at the Cité in Paris, and you know wow. almost got into some pretty big survey shows. And yeah, so I was wow. kind of trying to, you know, I, th I throw myself at things full on when I, yeah. when I try them, and, and I was determined to be, you know, an artist. Mm. But early on, like right back at those art school days, I also got so involved in organising stuff and helping other people and researching and the kind of politics of the art community and, and all this other stuff. And so, you know, so I was curating shows from, from mm. before I graduated and stuff as well. So I kind of had this kind of broad interest. And um, I suppose the first, the first proper job I had was, you know, at the art school. So it was running um, this place called Entrepot, which has a art supplies shop and it then had a, a gallery that would show the work of staff and students basically um, or recent graduates and we opened a kind of small bookshop as, as part of that and because um, you know, me and my friends didn't have to buy art books in Hobart at the time and that led in fact it was specifically that bookshop thing that led to me being kind of sounded out about a job running the bookshop in the National Gallery in Canberra mm. so in you know convoluted process but I ended up in 1995 moving to Canberra and managing the, the bookshop there and that was the sort of beginning of a phase of running commercial activity merchandising retail stuff both at the National Gallery and at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney mm -hmm. and during that time while I was doing all this fairly pretty exciting scale commercial activity within cultural institutions it was really important for me to maintain my art practice I felt like I still had some sort of foot in some you know imaginary camp right and yeah um, still authentic you know which is yeah. you know I mean you, you'd play these games in your head you probably still hadn't had kids by that time that's right <laughs> so that's right you can do stuff at night you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right you know there'd be a drawing mm. on the drawing board and it would sit there for months and months and months because I would have this laborious kind of uh, high detail kind of yeah. uh, thing and, and they would be parts of kind of broader installation kind of things you know? but increasingly it became obvious to me that I couldn't do all the things that I wanted to do well 
and that I didn't want to make bad art. Yeah, fair enough. And so when I took a job as Associate Director of Object, yeah, which is in 20, Sydney. 20 years ago in mm-hmm. Sydney, so it's the, now the Australian Design Centre was then Object Australian Centre for Craft and Design, that's 20 years ago now, that was an opportunity for me to make, because that, that, that role had a kind of initially administratively heavy but ultimately a curatorial kind of aspect to it and I I made the very conscious decision because I'd done sort of curatorial work as a freelancer and you know writing and all sorts of other stuff on the side you know as the the yes person does but yeah I I remember making a, a really clear conscious decision to stop trying to make art at all when I took that job and How did you feel about that? Was that? It was a great relief. Oh God, that's so interesting. Actually, like, and it really like it was a, it was empowering in a way that was. Mm. So I, you know, the art school in, in, in Hobart has a had uh, a really strong material based you know craft design kind of focus. It was a it was a school of art, craft, and design. That was how yep. it built itself, yep. and great leaders in in a lot of those material disciplines. Yep as well as extraordinary conceptual rigour and all that other stuff as well. But I had, during my time at the National Gallery and at the MCA, taken my artist training, any qualification I have in the world is degree in sculpture, right? My it's networks, very valuable. It is, I, absolutely. Yeah. You can go <laughs> um, anywhere with it. But I took that sensibility, those skill sets and the networks I had mm. and tried to kind of manage commercial activity. So I often often did things that, that utilised the skills and services of, of craftspeople and designers. So, you know, we, we mm. the National Gallery in Canberra in the mid-90s was the first institution in this country to kind of showcase the work of living makers mm. in a retail context. Now, that seems de rigueur now. Like, you know, none of them don't do it. But at that time, and that, that had kind of local commercial galleries up in arms, it had all kinds of, you know, thresholds seemed to be transgressed by doing that. But it was, uh, I didn't know any better, right? Because I'd just come out of art school and <laughs> I'd been, the, the retail and stuff I'd been doing, yeah. running a little gallery for graduates of the art school, we would, we would show, you know, that kind of work. So I kind of just carried that through. And so early, you know, we, we presented work by Les Blaper or Susan Conn or yeah. Blanche Tilden, you know, when yeah. she was just graduating and stuff. Yeah. So, in, and some of that work was purchased by the gallery for the collection, you know, and, and so interesting stuff. So I, I suppose what I'm getting to is that I had always had a predilection towards, though I'd been immersed completely in the contemporary, contemporary visual arts idiom, I'd always been far more interested in the kind of craft, design, decorative arts space, the materiality, and whether that's the kind of you know, working class background or whether it's the material sensitivities that dominated Hobart or whatever, I don't know, growing up in Tasmania, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. but that's that's always been a kind of thing for me. It's very grounding. Materials are more grounding than an idea. Yeah, yeah. And and for me, the combination of things is really exciting too. And and Mm. I'm interested in reading the materials. Like, you know, I want to know what that material is, what its story is, both, both... 
scientifically but also kind of metaphorically what, what, mm. what's the cultural resonance of this mm. material um, I think our our currency is ideas and stories it yeah. doesn't matter if you're a craftsperson or if you're an artist or an installation artist or postmodernist or that's right it's, it's, it doesn't matter. The, the currency is the same the exchange yeah. of those stories and ideas you're right so when I when I took the job at object which was to have a, a kind of curatorial aspect which 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 you know grew very quickly i made that conscious decision that i no longer needed to struggle away at trying to make bad art mm. <laughs> yeah god do you reckon that was a hard decision look it was at the time and and i recall i recall um i was lucky i was living um in, in, in Sydney, obviously, and, and, and walking across the Harbour Bridge, um, as, as you can do for free if you don't go up high. Um, and <laughs> you can pay quite a lot, you can pay quite a lot to go up high. But I remember, uh, you know, having this kind of philosophical discussion with myself. Because I had spent, I had invested a lot of time and energy and, you know, I'd gone to university and all that sort of stuff mm. to be an artist or, you know, yeah. to initially not to do that but that, that's what I discovered that you could do and um, you know did it feel like I'd abandoned something had I evolved in some way had I found my space mm. or so all those kind of conversations and, and when I resolved that that's what I was going to do mm. I, I truly felt relieved and I remember you didn't have to fight yourself anymore yeah, and, and, and not feel guilty. Yeah. Do you know, like, it's, it's like having a pet that you don't feed properly or walk often enough. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right? You know, and, and yeah, I can, totally I can see that you understand. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it literally is like that. And, and that, you know, when I described that drawing on the drawing board before, my, my recollection of that has me feeling those kind of pangs of, like, you know, guilt. Mm. You know, I was never Catholic, but I imagine that's the kind of Catholic guilt that they talk about. No, Catholics aren't. <laughs> they haven't got a monopoly on no, guilt, that's right. No. Um, so I felt relieved, and I felt that it gave me a kind of renewed headspace to throw myself passionately at a creative practice that was not about my own mm. making and authorship, mm. but was about my capacity, which... I had sharpened through the kind of type of practice I'd built, which was a kind of narrative-based installation practice that was about telling stories. I'd developed some skills that I felt I could take into a kind of curatorial role mm. in, a, in a, a way that was perhaps different to what other people had done before. Mm. And I was really excited by that opportunity. Mm. Did you have an agenda that you wanted to promote? Yeah, I guess I did, uh, and, and in some ways there was some naivety in that on reflection, but I think it's good to try and do and say something rather than to just kind of like wobble away. So I, I was determined to shake things up a little bit. Yeah, so Steve Pozell was the new director and uh, we'd worked together at the Museum of Contemporary Art. We'd both, while we were at the MCA, taken a strong interest in the kind of developing design sector in in Australia and 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 partly that came out of the, the designer maker kind of 
stuff specifically for me coming from Tassie yeah. and being heavily involved in yeah. some of that and the work I'd done as I mentioned in the mm. retail context so. yeah. but you know seeing that there was all this emphasis in the funded infrastructure on a particular set of practices that were kind of you know that, that, that were encapsulated in the kind of crafts movement and its, its kind of um, trajectory and that There'd been moments of fascinating kind of intersection with design and and the kind of orbits around that, particularly the sort of independent designer maker and so forth, that had gotten a little bit of airplay from time to time, but were were not properly represented. And certainly, given the number of people that seem to be kind of doing interesting things, mm. that were far more interesting to me at the time than repeating kind of what, what seemed to be kind of predictable paradigms. So I was really interested in trying to shift that balance. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, similar things were happening across the country. In, in some ways, we might have been slightly at the kind of pointy end of the curve, but it, it, it exposed historical tensions between craft and design and between commerce and culture and because a lot of people within the kind of funded infrastructure who taught in universities who were invested deeply in one model saw another as some kind of you know devil that, that you know should be resisted in some way and I have no sense of hierarchy between those things I'm interested in mm. are the ideas interesting are the stories mm. interesting uh, is the methodology that's that's producing it somehow unique is that a story worth telling? You know, and I'm, I'm interested in the kind of most deep fundamental um, traditions of craft in its purest form, deeply, as much as I am in, in the kind of maverick design thinker playing with, you know, turning sea urchins mm. into a biomaterial. You know, mm. like, I find all of that really interesting, right? Because it is. Because it is, right? <laughs> and, and I guess, you know, what early in that, that tenure, it became evident that, that there was a whole kind of history of debate that some of the things that we were doing and some of the things that we failed to communicate kind of, I suppose, heightened people's anxiety about the loss of some things, you know, that, that there were. But at the time, object was seen to be abandoning craft to embrace design and that was never the Mm. intent Mm. the intent was to kind of place these things in context and see the the kind of opportunity because object was or probably still is a member-based organization uh no it wasn't then uh and it's certainly not now but it had been previously okay and and in fact some of that stuff was yeah. sitting festering. Yeah, and, there's ownership. Mm. That, that's right. And, and so uh, I remember, you know, a, a kind of very difficult public rally. Really? You know, where there were you know, more than 100 people gathered. Did you have to get up and speak to it? Yeah, I did. Oh, and it was God a damn. pivotal moment for me because it was a platform to actually address the perceptions yeah. that we were fighting, not the actual reality. So, yeah. But the good thing about all that is that one of the things that we did to demonstrate the breadth of what we were trying to do was 
the Living Treasures program, which is all about celebrating the most iconic people in the mm. crafts field, and it's been enormously mm. successful, right? Mm. So, in many ways, the, um, the the kind of angst that came to a head actually had some really good outcomes. And what I've learnt, you know, 20 years later, is that these these debates are ongoing and cyclic, and you know, people are going to take their their view and and and, and um, align themselves with with people that think similarly and, and it's like you know this sort of coalitions of different kinds of people with different kinds of values that come together and create our whole sector and that's okay yeah and the the, the reality is that everything changes yeah and things around you change so quickly and markets are changing all the time and for an organisation not to change with that, not to roll with those punches, is ludicrous. Yeah, so, you know, roll forward and, and you know, the now near 10 years I've spent at Jam Factory and a big part of the work we do, as you know, is, is guiding people into their, their careers in craft and design yeah. and, and, you know, through the associate program. And the kind of opportunities that existed when you went through 20 years ago-ish? Yeah, more. More? Mm, um, 25. And the kind of market, the kind of infrastructure and galleries and events is vastly different to, to It's the, vastly that now, different. Right? It's a good segue to just touch base on what Jam Factory is. Of course, and, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it's... it's um, Does it ever make jam or has it ever made jam? Sadly, no, but it is a very often asked question. Maybe you need um, to make some. We, Do you know, when I was here, I had a studio here after I'd finished my associateships, right? There'd people come in and say, where's the jam? Yeah, and we still get it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, um, and apparently, apparently in the past, we've had phone calls from, you know, sugar, uh, <laughs> sugar trade merchants and stuff. So, uh, you should bring them in. <laughs> we need some samples, please. And of course, when we when we launched the magazine a few years ago, we, we couldn't resist. We called it Marmalade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's good. So, yeah. it, it, it's it's an organisation that, that was founded uh, or, or, or you know started life in the early seventies in nineteen seventy three. It was an initiative of the then Don Dunstan Labor government during that period of kind of big arts, industry and infrastructure reforms, mm-hmm. both both in South Australia specifically through Dunstan, but nationally during the Whitlam era as mm. well. And that combination had a big impact on many of the kinds of people that came to Adelaide yeah. and who, to, to you know, work at the jam factory or to run studios, to um, set up programs. It has always, so it, it began in an old jam factory and that's where the name comes yeah. from. And in 1991, a new purpose-built premises was built, the one that, that we're, we're in now. sitting in now. And, uh, you know, originally it had uh, workshops for uh, glass and ceramics, but also jewellery, knitted textiles, woven textiles, leather. And it had uh, a gallery, or a series of gallery spaces, and, and a retail shop. And the, the principle was that it was a hub for the craft artisan uh, maker kind of community to pull resources and, and, and get some shared efficiencies and also reach markets and audiences. So it's kind of about building a kind of ecosystem and an economy around 
craft and design. Interestingly, you know, from its very beginning, those kind of things we were talking about earlier around the sort of perceptual differences around craft and design, that, that binary discord has kind of been part of Jam Factory's history since it began. So Don mm. Dunstan's original vision and, and Peter Ward, who was his then media advisor, has kind of written about this at various points at one point in the 80s, I think very controversially, that it was always intended as an organisation that would connect craft with industry to create the kind of economic impact on the state that the Scandinavian brands like yeah, Arctic right. and Dittler and Costa Boat yeah. and all those things. That was, that was what got the political capital yeah. and treasury to kind of commit to such a substantial thing. And of course, during that time, we also had, you know, the, the, the blossoming of the crafts movement in Australia and, it very, and the crafts board of the Australia Council and all these things. And so the kind of heroic artisan craftsperson model quickly usurped the original political vision. And so uh, the Peter Ward kind of criticism of, of Jam Factory in the 80s, it was kind of, you know, in, in national newspapers and stuff, was that it was, you know, it had, it had lost its original purpose and it was this kind of elitist art thing. And, yeah. and so we, we, we play in both of those spaces today, very yeah. happily. Mm. Um, happily? Uh, mostly happily. You know, mm. there, are, there are always going to be... You've got different agendas from, yeah. other, from the people that come and That's participate. Right. We, we, we serve so many different audiences and yeah. for people who, who have deep personal investment in one paradigm, they will see some of what we're doing as antithetical to that. It's a nice word. And, and I, I respect that. That's, that's fine. The, the, there are some brutal economic realities that have us yeah. having to champion certain things at certain times. But, you know, I think that we are very conscious of trying to support the broadest possible range of practices in our field that we can. And the current range of exhibitions we have celebrates, you know, a very particular kind of craft trajectory um, yeah. with uh, Mel Robson's ceramics, John Goulder's furniture and Stephen Bauer's ceramics. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's in contrast to some of the other kinds of projects that, that we've done or some of the c commercial activities that we take on. So I think it's about trying to strike that balance. Mm. Um, but, you know, you will run into people who, who, who will have formed a view over time of what they think something should be. And uh, as you or said before, that, that, that's right. In fact, yeah, often that's about... A, a personal need that they have or, 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 or a desire or whatever. And I think uh, I try to respect all those things. I, I think the team here generally try to, but you kind of want to make sure that you're speaking to as many people as you can, not just the kind of few or, or the, the club. Or um, It does exist as an organisation to support and nurture professional practice, but it, it also exists to bring an audience to those practices, to kind of create markets for those practices and to represent the breadth of those practices as a public organisation. Right? Mm. 
Yeah. So um, the other things that, 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 that Jam has always done is present exhibitions and yep. and deliver income to practitioners through retail sales and a range of other kind of commercial activities that might include making speculative objects, awards, trophies, boardroom tables, office fit-outs, all, all public artworks, you know, assisting artists or, or, or designers in manufacturing components of their work, uh, anything that, that might provide a kind of income stream for people with craft and design skills, uh, other kind of commercial opportunities that we look for to support the income generation needs of, of the organisation, but also to provide income and training where possible to the people coming through our training program. Mm. So it's part of the charter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not always um, a good fit. That's right. There can be some real challenges, and, and mm. the balancing act for all of my predecessors has been: how do you ensure you're delivering on those? training and public education and audience development kind of objectives and kind of feeding the hungry beast. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I would imagine you'd probably feel like you're a bit of a meat in the sandwich from time to time. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be the, the kind of punching bag on that stuff because I, I, I do have a pretty broadly philosophical view on it. Mm. Um, but the reality is, I mean, so Jam Factory enjoys generous support from the state government in South Australia. Um, we're in a building that was built for us that we don't mm. pay more than a dollar a year rent for. It's pretty That's good extraordinary. Um, yeah. And this, you know, for, for context, is a four and a half thousand square metres, you know, spread across three floors. It's a big facility. In a great location right in the right CBD. In the city. Um, yeah. That, you know, some hundred odd uh, makers use mm. to make their work. But the funding we get from the state government, which is about a million dollars a year, Jam Factory's been receiving about a million dollars a year for 20 years. Yeah. So a million dollars in 2001. Yeah, yeah it's very was different. Doing yeah. a whole lot more than a million dollars is doing today. Yeah. So so those kinds of realities mm. for someone sitting in my role are interesting challenges. Mm. But the great thing about craft and design and the people who work within those various media that that represents is that they are some of the most entrepreneurial people you'll ever find. Yeah, and creative. And creative, right? Mm. And so value creation and aligning the kind of skills that you have to a commercial opportunity, that's just the stock and trade. That's the that's in the DNA, right? And so the advantages that I think this organization has is that there's a lot of people like that in it. And as an organization, we can afford to think that way. Mm. So much like a designer maker might need to have a range of revenue streams. They might do some yep. workshop teaching. Yep. They might assist someone else with their work. They might yep. do some commissions. They might have two or three galleries and a shop that represent them. We have to be that kind of nimble. Um, mm. But like an individual practitioner, they might get grants. They might uh, have a patron who supports them by you know buying them mm. air tickets to go to a show. Or mm. So we kind of see the organisation as a kind of manifestation in some ways of that model of practice. Yeah. And the support that the Gen Factory has given practitioners over the last, well, since 1973, is just immense. 
Yeah, I think there are um, there are now more than 500 alumni yeah. from the training program. We take two or three associates. That's what we call the people that yeah. come through the training program. Two or three associates each year in each of the four studios we currently have. So since the building was purpose built here in 1991, we now have four studio disciplines in ceramics, glass, furniture, and what we call metal and jewellery. And those associates come from all across Australia and around the world, and they apply through a competitive process with a portfolio and an interview, and they're selected on the strength of their work and the aptitude that they have. And so, you know, picking a group of people who you think will work well together as opposed to a group of people that might rip each other's heads off, um, given how, in, how intensely in each other's pockets they are mm. during the time here mm. is really important. And we, we encourage people to work really hard. We expose them to a lot of opportunities, some that are good for them, some that are you know, not necessarily good for where they see themselves. So each person that comes sees a different career trajectory. And because we have so few people, we can tailor what we do. So in the furniture program, which is near and dear to your heart, people might come in with fine woodwork skills training and might want to be making kind of collectible work for galleries. We also have people that might come with an industrial design background who want to hone some of those kind of skills but really just want to understand manufacturing better so that they can liaise better with industry and have a kind of royalty arrangement for a different kind of practice or people that just want a commissions-based practice or you know people that want to do all that or you know so when we've got things happening in our studios the people heading in one or other direction can be allocated or, or given the opportunity to kind of you know work on something or not and that's quite valuable but we also then kind of bring in people with different kind of skills. So we have visiting artists and designers. We have people that come in to do workshops or exhibitors, people that are exhibiting in the program who can come and you know, talk to our associates who might have vastly different backgrounds. Mm. So you might get a you know, dynamic young contemporary furniture designer like Tom Skeen come and talk one day and you might have you know, a, a skilled artisan. You know, we've got a, a, a Luther violin maker coming in soon oh, really? to, to, to talk to us. So, you know, that kind of variety is not going to be for everybody, but if you expose the people that are not interested in that to that, they might open some new windows for them. And if you're providing that to the people that are most passionate for, you're going to giving them more of what they love. Yeah. So either way, I think that, that that's a good approach. Yeah. My experience here was wonderful. You know, there's all sorts of things that I learned. I didn't necessarily want to, some of them. Oh yeah, but it's good, and and, and actually, I think um, great base for a, a, a business to be run. You know, two two key lessons I think that everyone learns that comes to the training program here is that it's really hard work making a mm. living as a designer maker, artist, and craftsperson, yeah. whatever, and that you've actually got to build some resilience. Yeah, and some of the kind of you know it might well be you know I, I talked about you know the interpersonal stuff. It might be that that you know difficult relationships between two people in a studio are regrettable but sometimes the, the skills that people develop in simply managing that relationship they hadn't anticipated mm. become important life skills Absolutely. and that's not all you know that's you're going to learn that out in the workforce anyway regardless but 
Yeah. 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 It's a pretty safe place to learn that stuff. Yeah. You know, when you're in the thick of it, you know, I think it feels like everything, but when you, when people leave and look back on it... What the all... wonderful thing is that it provides a, a little bit of a buffer between the real world and the practice that you're trying to build. You know, if you've got to pay rent in those first oh, yeah. couple of years... Yeah, now look, we, we, we talk about it as a kind of um, slingshot. Yeah. You know, that, that um, yeah. you, you do have this privileged thing. So, so you've got access to the kind of tools, equipment, space, yeah. people that, that will be more difficult to access outside of this sort of, you know, privileged And business awareness and markets, as you, you know, the Jam Factories Charter and galleries and... Yeah, so, so you, get, yeah. you get a kind of accelerated exposure to a yeah. bunch of things that would be hard to replicate otherwise yeah. but the, the slingshot things about you know you're in that environment where all those kind of opportunities are kind of you know brought to you in, in, in a lot of ways the harder you work the harder you pull back on the slingshot yeah. the kind of further you might kind of go Look, that, yeah I mean these conversations it's been absolutely crystal clear the more you work the more you receive and you could I, I like the word practice Yes, yeah, no, because it, it does, it, it, it's both the thing and the thing you need to do for the yep. thing. <laughs> yeah, running a practice. Yeah. And the more you practice, the better you get. Yeah. And look here, you know, we have, you know, there are great histories in the craft disciplines that, that we uh, work with. And, and if I look at the glass blowing uh, as, as, as perhaps, you know, the medium that gets the most attention, you know, whether, whether you know, um, it's deserved or not. If you're a jeweller, you probably it's think that's hard done at. by. But it's 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 the theatrical one, right? Yeah, it's the fire sure. and brimstone. It's yeah. the kind of you know intense pressure yeah. to work with a material that that if 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 it cools down or you know so particularly because we deal with we have a hot glass studio yeah. and, and um, the pressures around the time and the material are, are kind of in real time and. Um, that creates its own theatre, and, and one of the things that, in terms of public engagement with the Jam Factory, is the opportunity to come and watch glass blowing live. And if you haven't seen it before, come and have a look because it is amazing. And um, but it's a material that has such incredible traditions mm. and such deep material knowledge encapsulated in people that have that have spent their lifetime kind of working with it. You know, if you're a young glass blower and you're here for a couple of years amongst glass blowers that have been doing it for 30 and 40 years, um, who've done it all over the world. And, and that's doing it day in, day out, compared to you know having maybe four or eight hours access to a hot shop in a university over three years, you know, per, per week or something. You know, so it's, it's a really intensive environment mm. and, and the skills uh, transmission, the peer-to-peer learning, the kind yeah. of... And the other thing too is that there's a cross-disciplinary opportunity too if you're in furniture you could fall in love with glass for instance indeed indeed and and people do and it's fantastic and and, mm. and collaborations form and and of course you know people are often here in the nascent stages of their life and, and often fall in love with one another um and that's you know it's kind of funny in some ways but it's also yeah. kind of a really interesting and critical element of the history of jam factory yeah because it's a place that has attracted some extraordinary people to this state yeah. who are still here. Yeah. 
Many of them are still here because there's a great infrastructure that supports them. Jam Factory is part of that. It's not the whole story, but it's it's been one of the things that has attracted people. Yeah. And often at those nascent stages of their lives, and if you've come from another country or state and you fall in love with a person as well as the kind of place, you form roots here. Yeah. And those roots are like, you know, they're colonizing. Yeah. So we have in Adelaide an extraordinarily high proportion of successful world-leading artists, designers, craftspeople who work in crafts media for our population base. And I think that part of it is actually the personal relationships, not just the infrastructure. The infrastructure attracts people. Mm -hmm. People stay because of the combination of personal relationships. That might be community mm. as much as it is kind of romantic relationships, but it's definitely part of it. It's a great place to um, bring up children. <laughs> and uh, I'm here because of the, exactly what you talked about. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, in my role, of course, I meet a lot of people who have yeah. got that story. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to actually note it, put it out there, because, yeah, uh, yeah that's part of my personal story for sure. Mm. And a bunch of people who've contributed so much to this state have, mm. have done the same thing. Yeah. But it's not just the makers. So here, there's an interesting kind of parallel. There are, there are people, you know, I, we have a, a, a significant donor who a couple who chose to invest and start a business in South Australia because it ticked all the boxes that they needed for a particular kind of business which a number of other places did but this was the only place that also had a rich glass ecosystem and they were from the United States and collectors of glass yeah right and so the kind of straw that got them over the line yeah to invest in this state and make a significant contribution to this state was that there is this creative community around glass that is, you know, one of the great centres of the world. You know, yeah. there, there are it's, it's a it's a sort of you know global thing, the glass thing, and there are not many mm. cities where where you've got that level of infrastructure. So yeah. the fact that we have all this attracts talented people not just in our field but people who are inspired by the stuff that we do you know so if you're a you know a space science engineer now and we've got a space station now in in headquartered in adelaide um, the australian space station or space agency i think it is so mm. um, you know if if you're also interested in material sciences or you've you know, had, had some relationship to contemporary jewellery or something, then you, you're looking around for the kind of places to live because you can kind of, your, your skill set's transferable and, and desired in various places. What about lifestyle? What are the things that you mm. So, So I think, I think that we actually have the investment in Jam Factory from the public purse over 47 years has had net gains far and away beyond just those that are obvious. How hard do you have to argue that? Oh, you know, pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I guess, you know, in terms of the um, viability of Jam Factory, we, we have enjoyed strong bipartisan support mm. in this state for a very long time. Mm. And while our state funding has been relatively flat, the state government's support of the organisation 
and the way it's helped in, in influence and so forth is, is incredibly um, robust. Yeah, and our Commonwealth funding has increased in recent years quite substantially. Okay. Mm. Is that for specific projects or is that for the gen factory as a whole? Both. Yep. Actually, we've been able to increase our core funding and, yep. and cool. uh, significant kind of project funding, particularly around exhibitions. Yeah. Is the core funding a reason for the state government to say, oh, we're going to reduce? Uh, no, look, you know, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it's unfortunate that we haven't been able to see staggered increases over time on mm. that state funding, but the state's resource base, you know, has been challenged, right? So, um, you know, we we have to kind of work with what we've got and mm. what we've got is extraordinary and there are organizations across the country that see that level of funding that we get from a state government you know as extraordinary largesse you know that i mean what we try and do for that i think is of a scale um a quantum scale but you know do i do i wish there was more, do I try very hard to put those arguments about our value forward to prosecute that case? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's your political hat, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and, and I, I'm, you know, I'm optimistic about what kind of growth this organisation will see. Certainly have some bold ambition for redevelopment. Yeah, um, okay. And for expansion. Uh, yeah. You know, there are things like an education centre. We can't accommodate the sort of stuff that schools would like us to do in this building. There's, the, the studio spaces are busy, productive environments. We can't do a whole bunch of that stuff, and there's a huge demand. I know there is a huge demand. Um, there's a whole population out there that would love to get hands-on experience with stuff of all ages, not just... Not just the kids. I mean, and it's interesting because this workshop stuff, you know, the, the kind of experience skills development stuff for grown-ups let's say we've been ramping up the kind of short course workshops that we do and this is quite extraordinary we've almost three years in a row seen a doubling of the interest in paid participation in in these workshops Mm. which are typically like a like our introduction to hand-thrown pottery, mm. which is a seven-week course for mm. $390 or something, where you come a couple of hours, one night a week for seven weeks. You know, we've got a few different classes in ceramics, but we're currently running 16 classes a week at the moment, including specialist classes for people in, in um, retirement living. But there's, there's some really, like this experience economy stuff, this eagerness to kind of, learn how to make things or, or get busy with your hands or be productive in some way or be social around the idea of being productive and it's creating you know we talked about how the environment around us changes and so the nature of practice needs to change one of the most extraordinary things you know ceramics 20 years ago was almost dead you know we we, we watched every TAFE program shut down across the country Mm. just about Mm. universities shutting their courses down potters kind of not being able to find work for or or avenues to get to market or whatever now ceramics is like the new rock and roll it's kind of you know every every Michelin hatted restaurant has handmade pottery every contemporary art gallery at the highest end has some you know superstar artist who's working in kind of you know outlandish kind of ceramic sculptural kind of 
yeah. Canon. Um, you know, it's hot, it's hot. And, you know, there are ceramic artists all over Australia currently making big chunks of their income teaching yeah. people in small workshops or in yeah. places like ours. And that's fantastic. Mm. You know, there are people building whole entrepreneurial businesses mm. yeah. around that activity. Yeah. That's healthy. It's really healthy. The interesting thing is, I don't think it's vocational. It's, um, it's a demand from people who maybe want an antidote to their digital world. Oh, yeah. Now, some of the people we have, you know, they're lawyers, accountants, um, mm. council workers, a airline stewardess, mm. you know, um, all kinds of people I've spoken to casually in the corridors, yeah. you know, to find out what, what their normal kind of occupations are. It's fascinating. Yeah. And their reasons for wanting to do it are all quite varied. Yeah. But it's creating employment and it's deepening people's engagement with craft and design. So if you've done a seven-week pottery course and you go down to our shop and you see a handmade vessel and you see its refinement, the mastery of the material that you found to be so difficult to work with, and you see a price tag on it, mm. you have a completely different mm. understanding of what mm. that value is mm. than if you hadn't done that. Mm. And so it also works as this kind of ambassadorial kind of thing for people becoming advocates for the value of handmade and why if we're going to you know not rely on inequitable kind of you know labor markets in third world countries that buying something good that lasts that's been made by someone you know and appreciating the skill involved in its making and maybe not chucking it out after a couple of years you know th those sorts of values that are going to be important mm as resources become scarce when the planet gets mm. more hostile. Mm. You know, so I think that people are embracing these things now for a range of big, big reasons. Yeah. You know, right. our, our moment That's has come. Yeah. You know, I think, I, think, I think that the craft and design moment has come. Again. <laughs> again, again. You know. I think it just, uh, it is a revolutionary thing in the sense that it is perennial. It has its ups and downs and its roller coaster rides, but working with your hands is something that is just so important to the human condition. Yeah, and I think, you know, even patterns of consumption are changing. So, you know, retail in Australia is, is, is experiencing slumps year on year and uh, certainly the slowest growth in modern history. And you're seeing all sorts of retailers go under. We, and I know that, that we're not the only people in this kind of craft and design retail space, we have had, you know, uh, record sales mm. in December and previous December yeah. were record sales. And, yeah. you know, the shop here in the city in, I think, six years has doubled its turnover. Yeah. Now, that's, that's phenomenal growth. Yeah. Now, and that I'm, means makers and designers are actually getting paid. That's right. They're making a living. That's right. It's contributing to, to, to those small businesses that are independent artists and designers, right? Mm. But it's, it's also speaking to some shifts and changes in, in, in how people are consuming and the kinds of things they're consuming. You know, the, the retail thing is, 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 is pretty important to us and it does work, as you say, as a way of supporting these things. I think, yeah, there's, there's a kind of shift in more ethical and emotionally connected kind of consuming and some of it's about the kind of decisions that we make in terms of 
you know, if you're in a restaurant and you decide to order a certain kind of food because of where the stuff came from and, mm. you know, the conditions under which the, the things were kind of, you know, that mm. same pattern is happening with other goods that we consume mm. and the furniture, the kind of tableware, the, you know, gifts that we give, you know, we want, we want to know that they're doing something good and positive rather mm. than something more detrimental that's playing well into the skill sets of designer makers. Yeah, it is. And what's interesting about that too, I mean, we, where we started in terms of the middle class stuff. So, you know, traditionally the idea of a practice where you would make things that through your uh, accrual of skills and stories over time become objects of value that are beautiful and belong in, in, in you know, public collections as well as private, that are acquired through a kind of system of commerce that preferences wealth in some way. So, you know, you, not everyone can afford to buy a $30,000 sideboard like one we have in the gallery at the moment, mm. beautiful though it is, mm. um, and worth that it absolutely is. Mm. Some of this other kind of practice that's seeing $100 vases made by kind of potters through efficient production processes. While it's not, not everyone can't afford a $100 vase, a lot more people can than can, you know, buy the kind of $10,000 vase that you might see in a commercial gallery representing an artist at the top of their game in, say, glass or ceramics. And that that kind of batch production and you know those sorts of things is creating some new kind of opportunities and business models for mm. people with craft skills so where once mm. the the idea was to be successful you needed to because you can only make so many things with your own two hands right so that you need the value of them to be much much greater to sustain uh, that's, the model. yeah that's one model yeah <laughs> well that's right that's right um so you know there's there's a kind of bunch of alternatives to that there's a heap and and you know definitely worthwhile exploring all of them yeah mm. and, and so you know and i think we've we, you know there is hierarchical thinkings about about you know which of those is the more worthy no they're all the same um, the worthiness the, the worthiness the is not it's if you can make it work and you're selling to international galleries and you're making lots per object that's great but I guarantee if you scratched any of those people, they would also probably say yes to anything. Oh, yeah, that's right, because it's, it's, it's hard. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's um, hard. We could look at somebody like Nick Mount, for instance, who's been on this show, and he would do anything if it was oh, hot yeah. glass. That, that's right. That's right. And, and I think that's... And Nick's a great example of the kind of entrepreneurial spirit that I was talking about yeah. before, where you you effectively have a set of skills that can be pointed in different directions. Someone asked me uh, at a tour the other day, you know, is, is glass an art or a craft? And I said, well, glass is a material. <laughs> <laughs> you know, architects use it too. Mm. <laughs> you know, so... Um, mm. Yeah, go you know and look out the window. So how, how, you know, so these, yeah. this kind of... We get caught up sometimes in the semantics of these things. And... Mm. Um, I think if, if you're going to niche yourself into one particular avenue, uh, if you were starting out or even if you're mid-career, I think you're making a big mistake. 
yeah, I think you want to you want to you know have as many dance partners as you can. Absolutely. And then if you find the one that, that kind of you know does it for you. you know, yeah, and it's only yeah. going to be it's going to be that dance partner for a little while, and then you'll change again. And you need to anyway from a personal perspective, I think, because new challenges are good. Yeah. They're good for your soul, and they're good for everybody. Yeah. And we see you know we see in our field you know practices that and I'm going to be a bit controversial with it that practices that can get stuck in some kind of time capsule and mm. and that's not a bad thing and you know because there's there's a kind of economy that supports that so if you're if you're making work of a particular type and there is a kind of healthy collector base globally for that work and that work speaks to a set of sensibilities and aesthetic and you know philosophical concerns that may not have the sort of resonance with contemporary trends or, or you know, aesthetic sensibilities of dominant kind of groups. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be completely viable and successful. It might mean that art museums might not collect your work the way that they once did. Well, not at the moment, been, but it, it might have been, yeah. You know, the work might have had a strong resonance of time and place. Mm. And if, if you've continued to make that work because you've got a strong economic support base for that work, great. But don't be upset if tastemakers in institutions are looking elsewhere for the thing that's about now. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't do that either. You just need to, like, you know, and I think I have deep respect for, for some makers who have been, you know, mentors to me who, who, who've got handful of patrons around the world that support them in what they do and have put their kids through university and you know all that sort of like yeah you what's know. their phone number <laughs> <laughs> some of them are in Tasmania um, <laughs> now you know that, that, that's a great thing and I would support that and I, I would want some mm. of our, our young people going through to kind of hear their stories because mm. you don't have to be on the current bandwagon to be good no <laughs> I mean you can and, and there's all mm. sorts of opportunities if you and, it, and if that's what you want to do then there are some really important things you need to do to understand that mm. but you, you've got to find where what, what spoke on the wheel yep. you want to kind of go along yeah and, like and you you're say, better you're, off doing that than following the bandwagon yeah that's right if you yep. if you try and like what what you and I know about nearly every successful creative practice is that none of them are alike Absolutely. They're yeah. not alike. And they are authentic. Mm, yeah, completely. And that's, that's, at the end of the day, the key. And, and no matter what the market that you're aiming for, authenticity is the key. Yeah, because that's part of your story. And your story is what ultimately you have. Yeah. And, and you know, the stories, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of the privileges of working in this kind of field is that you come across fascinating stories every day, right? Yeah. And, you know, particularly if, 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 like me, you're interested in material culture and, yeah, and, yeah. and um, you know, and how people get to do what they're doing and what it was that led them to doing it. And mm. that's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> yeah, no, which I'm enjoying. I've been listening to to several of them and and mm. um, and pleased to be uh, part of this. You know, I think. As a non-maker, I have a different kind of 
voice and perspective, but it's, I hope, no less passionate. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely passionate, but I think it's a valuable voice. I've interviewed a few people that aren't necessarily makers, but you're a maker. You're a designer and a maker. You make I approach challenges. Yeah, you you, I, you yeah, make people's lives more enriched and you get your job done and you design in just the same way as you would making art. This it's is, just a different medium. Yeah, this is an incredibly rewarding job and the things that are rewarding about it are seeing people who either come through our program or, or join the organisation as staff or engage with it in some way and through its activities and the people and stuff that are part of it, seeing those trajectories kind of ramp up and watching people succeed mm. and watching them influence other people and help mm. them succeed, mm. you know, wow, right? It's, it's, mm. it, it's actually, um, it's why I get out of bed in the morning, you know, that, that, mm. that sense of impact that, that this place has and by implication my role, the thing that I find personally rewarding is, is that we do that. And, mm. and if I can do anything to kind of amplify that, and at every level, like you know, I, I'm, you know, we have this um, annual series of exhibitions, the Icon series, which is basically just a carbon copy of the Living Treasures thing mm. that we developed when I was at Object, except based in South Australia, because we have so many, like I said before, amazing makers or artists who work in craft disciplines here. So we could, we could do this annual series for decades and not run out of great people. That's exciting. So seeing the impact of projects like that, where it's, these are a major solo show with a big publication and a national tour and you know, public programs and stuff. When you see someone at the top of their game generate new opportunities and growth, right, from a project, mm. it's like, Wow, mm. you know, and, 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 and the impact that it has is reflected mm. back. Um, that's just as important as the graduate that comes out of yeah. one of the art schools and yeah. becomes, you know, um, the next big thing. You know, mm. I, I want to be doing all that. That's, if, if this place is doing what it exists to do, that, it's, it's that, you know. Um, mm. And all of the other stuff that we do somehow in support of that yeah I reckon we've talked about the jam factory enough very happy to talk about it but I think it'd be good just to get back to Brian I'm wondering like you've got parents your dad was in the slaughterhouse was he always supportive of whatever you wanted to do yeah I guess um, mum and dad always encouraged me to have a go at things and you know would never push me and as an only child you know I spend a lot of time in 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 my bedroom drawing you know cars and trucks or um, you know at one point animals what or you I, needed you know, was a computer game <laughs> I, I I had a um, Commodore VIC-20 um, couldn't we couldn't we couldn't afford the Commodore 64 that everyone no. else had the, the mm. VIC-20 that was in the 80s though right before that it was drawing but I would try all kinds of things and they would 
like I'm going to do little athletics and they'd get up early and they'd take me and they'd try other things and you know and but never push you know there were there were there were parents at the various sorts of sporting things or other kinds of activities that were you know pushy and they would basically just kind of take me <laughs> and let me go so mm. it was a kind of yeah, it sounds like it worked for in, you independence you know whether it was the nature of their parenting or being an only child I don't know but the uh, I had a kind of independent spirit pretty early it's interesting you know we we my life uh, I'm often surrounded by books and in fact I've recently kind of donated lots of books to to other libraries and gotten rid of lots of books and stuff because yeah. I've just accumulated way too many over time yeah. you know there were probably only 10 books in my house as a kid yeah you know, Reader's Digest, something or other, and a fishing manual, and maybe mm. some cookbooks. And, you know, not that I, I mean, you know, we, I borrowed books from the library and read as a kid, I remember reading a fair bit, but, you know, the sense of the kinds of things that I take for granted now that my kids are surrounded by is completely different to, yeah. you know, um, you know, we have a lot of art in our house, a yeah, lot of, yeah. you know, decorative art objects. Hey, and you know what? Your house is a designer house too. <laughs> um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, what's it like living in a designed house? It's, it's actually, it's a good question for me. And, and, and um, because, you know, for a lot of my life, you know, I had a career in the arts and, and, and specifically in craft and design and, and at, at various points have been described as like a, you know, a leading commentator in this country on Australian design, all that kind of stuff. And, and that's all the privilege of circumstances and that's great. But, and I you know, have been compelling and convincing in, in speaking or writing and, and all those things about, about that stuff. But it wasn't really until I lived in this house, which we moved into nine years ago, which is a 1960 modernist house designed by a South Australian architect called John Chapel, It wasn't until then that I inherently and deeply understood stuff I'd been saying mm. for a long time about the impact that good design mm. can have on your life and your well-being. Mm. And, you know, I've been lucky over a long time to be able to su surround myself with beautiful things of one form or another. Never great expensive things, but, but you know, the odd gift from a great designer or artist, the odd small thing that I could afford, lay by, or the, you know, and in more recent years, you know, I can, I can spend $2,000 on an object and not feel like I'm gonna have to go without so stuff. You right? bought over Thomas painting. Pri privilege. Um, well, that was actually a gift, <laughs> believe it or not. We're looking at a Rover Thomas. It's print. a print, to be fair, that is a story worth telling, actually, a little quick deflection. When I worked at the National Gallery running commercial activity, including the shops, as I said, we, were, we, we started selling work by living artists, mm. basically. And um, we'd started with decorative arts objects and we got into prints. And in fact, the, prior to my getting there, the National Gallery had commissioned a series of, of, of prints for the bicentenary at one point, And it also commissioned some stuff from uh, Arthur Boyd. So they'd, they'd had this sort of tradition of having prints. So 
uh, was the early stages of some of those um, print workshops that were kind of working with Indigenous artists yeah. very early on. Um, yeah. Australian Art Print Network was one, there were a couple of others. So we got a rep in who was interested in selling some prints to the gallery for the collection. And so Wally Karawana, who was then curator of Aboriginal art, and I looked through a whole lot of stuff and Wally picked a few things for the collection and I purchased a whole lot of stuff to resell in the shop. Yep. And we, we, we got two or three of these Rover Thomas prints and I think they were like, you know, the wholesale price was like $400 or something. And um, it's an edition of 25 or something, I don't know. And anyway, I instantly put one on hold for myself to buy myself and was going to lay by it and stuff. And, and it sat in this drawer for probably six or eight months. And when I was leaving, I'd resigned to take another job. Mm. Um, the tradition at the National Gallery then was that you know, people would pass the hat around to get donations mm. to buy a farewell gift for the member of staff leaving. And everyone, had, you know, there were 200 and something staff, right? So you, you get like, you know, a, Good little kitty. And so the friend who was um, my assistant manager at the time knew that this thing was in the drawer that I'd sort of half forgotten about. And so that was my farewell gift from the National Gallery. I think it's worth like 20 grand or something now. Mm. (laughs) Rover Thomas is just, he he rocks so hard. I love it. And and so we're sitting in my office and um, I have the great privilege of, of having that work you know, of the Milky Way, it's a print of the Milky Way mm. uh, to kind of stare at when I'm trying to deal with stuff. Mm. But, you know, living, and, and, and I guess that's, that's the thing about living in a house that we were talking about before, mm. that, that, you know, I find personal enrichment in the objects and the architecture that I'm lucky enough to surround myself with. And, you know, again, this house was not an expensive house in, in, in Adelaide terms, you know, um, and certainly moving from Sydney to Adelaide, mm. it was... There's a big jump you know, downwards, it, yeah. It, it, you know, this, what is it? It's an architect-designed house on a 1,300-square-metre block mm. with a pool and views of the sun setting in the, <laughs> the Gulf St Vincent through the gum trees that are filled with koalas from time to time. Yeah. It's paradise, right? Yeah, yeah. And you couldn't buy a one-bedroom apartment in Newtown mm. in Sydney for, well, you know, that would cost... Mm. half as much again as our house mm. that's kind of crazy it is crazy isn't um, it? it's mental it's one of the great things about being in Adelaide the cost of living is uh, is awesome and there's great food and there's great people and there's yeah. great art and I think it's one of the reasons why there are so many yeah. amazing creative people based yeah. here is that you can, if you, so if you, you can do it, that's right. You, you can mm. actually have a lower cost of living and mm. still reach a global marketplace. Yep. And so I, I think it, it, it's a pretty well-placed city for, for mm. that game. Yeah. I've got a question here. What <laughs> art do you find inspiring apart from Rover Thomas? I reckon Rover Thomas rocks. I guess I've, my, my, one of my transformative experiences when I was still living in Hobart and still running the sort of art supply shop gallery that was Entrepot, I took a trip to Melbourne for one of the Melbourne festivals. I think it would have been maybe 1992. And Craft Victoria had an exhibition of woven objects by 
women weavers at Men and Greta. Mm. And I think the exhibition was called The Language of Weaving. Mm. And it blew my mind, mm. literally blew my mind. And it was kind of the first real doorway into Aboriginal art and culture for me that resonated on some personal level. Now, the rich holdings of the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery and the Queen Victoria Museum and Art Gallery and living artists who I'd gotten to know while I was still there. In Tasmania, the kind of appalling colonial history that made the experience of lived culture in 1970s and 80s Tasmania impossible, certainly for a working class kid, right? To see this kind of exhibition and, and to kind of hear the stories of younger communities and continuous cultural practice and the kind of craft disciplines evolved over tens of thousands of years. When I, I, don't, I don't know why I hadn't consciously been aware of this stuff before. Like, you know, it's, it's like, it seems so ridiculous to say now, given the immersion I've had. But at that time, I was incredibly naive. And I think lots of people still are because we have stratified systems. You know, the, the people who, who, whose access to education means that they are not aware of stuff that we should all be aware of in this country, right? That exhibition opened my eyes and I have had the great privilege to visit a lot of remote Aboriginal communities and work with some amazing artists on great projects and acquire works directly from artists and art centres around the country that remind me of the cultures of this place, the landscapes of this place, and the many places that are so varied from each other in Australia and how lucky I am to be in this country, right? You know, that, that's, so yeah, our house has quite a lot of, I suppose, material culture and art objects by well-known and, 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 and very much lesser known Aboriginal artists. And I'm stoked that our kids are surrounded mm. by that stuff because that naivety that I had encountering that stuff as a 22 year old is in their DNA. You know, I love mm. that at their local public primary school, they sing the national anthem in the Ghana language. You know, yeah. these, are, these are very different experiences to, yeah. to what I had. Do you reckon they, yeah, appreciate's not the right word, do you reckon they'll take that on board and take that with them in their pursuit of life? And You know what, yeah. because like you didn't grow up with that, but it doesn't mean that you can't appreciate and, and, and grasp it now. That's right, you don't need the immersion to, to have an open mind. And in fact, if it is an immersion, it's not a discovery later in your life, is it? Or is it? I, I'm wondering. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and those those epiphanal moments, you know, they, they, I, I can talk about that moment because it, it, it had an impact. You know, if you... You if were you, ready and it was there. Yeah. You know, we have this fantastic Tarnandi festival here in Adelaide now, and part of that involves an art fair at Tandanya where work comes from art centres all over the country. And I've made a, a, a kind of habit now of, you know, people we've met through the kids... Who, who are not in the art world, um, and that's how you meet all sorts of interesting people, right? Mm. And inviting them to come along with us to yep. the art fair yep. to have an immersive experience. And 
I've enjoyed talking to them about the work, yeah. introducing them to people, yeah. making them feel more, you know, it can be intimidating to walk into something that's not familiar, right? And, and um, whether it's a contemporary art museum, Aboriginal art fair, a doctor's surgery, doesn't matter. If you're unfamiliar, you kind of, you want someone to break down the code for you. And once you know a little bit more, it's like, oh, oh. And so, you know, they walk away with purchases that are now proudly in their houses. Mm. You know, that's, it's a little thing. It's a little thing. Right? Yeah, but, but it's it, part of your story, isn't it? That, you know, <laughs> this, you know you, you're bringing people along. Yeah, I, I like mm. that, you know. And mm. I mean, the other great love I've had is beautiful, simple ceramic things. So there's, you know, way too many things that need dusting and can break <laughs> in our house. Um, <laughs> the kids will do that. They won't dust, but they'll break. No, that's right. Well, no, we, we, you know, there's... We've not really ever lost anything of substance. Um, oh, my, my kids um, smashed a Gwyn Hansen pig at oh, that's jug. That's <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the pain of that. It was part of a um, group of three, and Gwyn Hansen Piggott is no longer with us, unfortunately. Mm. It's irreplaceable. And It'd be a beautiful pair of Gwyn It's Hansen now Hansen. a beautiful <laughs> pair. It was once three. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I guess, you know, the, the, the kind of stuff, you know, obviously I work in the craft and design space, have done for nearly 30 years, and, and so I've, I've been drawn to work that is in that space, but mm. it's not the only work. You know, I've, for a little while I, I, I acquired a few interesting photographic works. But what's interesting, you know, when I, when I think about collecting stuff, it's not like that there's some kind of shopping list that I'm trying to tick off. You know, sadly, I don't have any of Gwyn's work, despite having many opportunities and known it quite well. My bad. But I've got works by a number of other key Australian ceramic artists sitting next to things that we've bought at op shops for $2. Mm. And I don't necessarily love one of them more than the other. Mm. You know, if I'm, if I'm really honest, I have a deeper personal connection to the ones that have been made by people I know and the story that one attaches to the work is important but there are stories like some of the op shops that we've gone to in some kind of great regional town where we've had a fantastic weekend away and I remember that weekend Mm. Mm. the acquisition of that two dollar unknown ceramic artist's work is not through my attachment to the maker, though I'm drawn to its aesthetic because of that maker's ability. My personal emotional attachment to it is that story of yeah. visiting, you know. That Here we town come back wife. once again. This idea of stories and how incredibly important and potent they are. You know, and we live in this mid-century modernist house, right? And so, you know, I've always had an interest in mid-century modernist design. Before we had the house, we had quite a bit of mid-century furniture. Some of it bought out of practicality. You know, when mm. we moved to Canberra, to Canberra, to Adelaide, you know, we needed a table and chairs. There were, you know, shops on McGill Road. There was a place that had antiques mostly, but at the back they had a bit of mid-century stuff and there was a kind of $500 mm. table and chairs. The table's a noblet table with T.H. Brown chairs, 500 bucks, you know. 
I, I paid someone recently to reupholster the chairs and spent you know fifteen hundred dollars reupholstering them <laughs> because they're beautiful chairs yeah. that speak to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah that's it. That's it. Uh, you know, there was a story in the paper not long after we bought the house, I think, um, where I'd been quoted as saying how we'd bought some noblet furniture because we, you know, had discovered it being an important local mid-century kind of thing. Mm. And partly we bought it because it's beautiful and we love it and would look good in yeah. the house. Partly it's, you know, affordable at the time. And, you know, this uh, woman who was just moving from her unit into a retirement home wrote to me because a bit care of the office here mm. uh, to say that she had this writing desk that she'd bought new 42 years ago and read the story and knew that we loved Noblet and wondered if if she could give it to us as a, as a, as a as to know that it would be given to someone who would appreciate it and mm. um, that yeah, yeah that, touching <laughs> you know as yeah, a piece of sure. I mean you know as a mm. furniture maker you'll mm. appreciate you know the, the kind of lived a crude value in an object mm. that that's, that that writing desk now has, which is now in our study. It's now priceless. Yeah, you know, mm. and and I mean, her, I think her, her her kids were anxious about that, and, and I and I, I gave her you know money that it was you know I, I didn't mm. want to I didn't want her to give it to me. She could mm. have, could have mm. done with the, the the cash, and so, but it it's the way that objects can connect people, and that stories build up around those objects and, and um, you know so that writing desk has on top of it seven or eight singular ceramic objects you know there's, there's a Milton Moon there's a mm. Houston Quello there's mm. a Prue Venables and there's a couple of things you know one's an industrial early 70s industrial English piece of commercial pottery that's just beautiful mm. and this set of objects on this beautiful mid-century kind of desk it's just a you know mm. to get up from the desk in the study and look at that vignette mm. as you switch off the light clearly you know. gives you joy <laughs> yeah. it, and it, it's Singing. not it's not big joy it's not no. kind of shout out joy it's that kind of quiet kind of hmm yeah you know that, that just makes life a little bit more joyful mm. you know I've got a personal question. You don't have to answer it, but you mentioned before that you've adopted. Have you got in contact with your biological parents? No, no. I, I, um, I took a view quite early on. So my mum and dad told me about my being adopted when I was six, which I think was smart on their part in lots of ways. I think they... Um, you know, they were never intending to not have that be something that I was aware of. I think they just needed to feel that I was old enough to kind of yeah, comprehend, comprehend what, what, it, mm. what it meant. And I don't think I did fully at six, to be honest. But when I was an awkward teenager, you, you have all the sort of awkward teenager things and you kind of, you know, with that layer, you kind of think about additional things. And, and I kind of... At that time, didn't want to do, I didn't want to seek out uh, that biological kind of story. So I didn't want to upset mum and dad. And they wouldn't have, in fact, they'd always encourage, they were keen to help if I wanted to and all that sort of stuff. But I kind of felt like uh, that, that 
that would have the the risk of undoing something and I didn't want to do that and then you know in my 20s or you know while I was at university and stuff I took a, a, a much more kind of deliberate philosophical view on it and at that time there were there were things happening around the um the legislation and stuff that was actually becoming increasingly easy to for people to mm. connect with uh, adopt you know with with biological mm. children or parents either way and um so, so it became it became a, a kind of something i needed to give some thought to and you know during the 60s and 70s the kind of there, there were kind of forced adoptions there were all sorts of things that were happening and, and we've seen public apologies around all that sort of stuff but there were kind of very difficult social pressures and my understanding is my, my maternal mother was um, her family were German migrants who were sugarcane farmers in far north Queensland and at some stage perhaps as her pregnancy was showing or in the late stages she was shipped off to Tasmania and had had the baby in a Salvation Army hospital that was me and I was adopted at four weeks old but my feeling was that you know if you had gone through that experience and I'm thinking about my maternal mother and developed whatever coping mechanisms or, or, or actually maybe 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 that was something you're actually really comfortable about maybe it was something you're really uncomfortable about um, I, I, I can only speculate right yeah. um, but whatever that was for that person they had they had kind of made some resolution around that and that I have never had any strong enough motive beyond being curious right like you know I'm a perfectly happy and capable person in the world and 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 so so it would and I you know I'm you know the whole nature nurture thing it's like it doesn't really matter really you know (laughs) kind of so I I, I always at that point I had this very deliberate view that if my curiosity unraveled something for somebody who had built their own mechanisms around that and and a life Mm. that was not that is my curiosity a strong enough motivation to risk that for somebody and I didn't think it was and I still don't the the only other time I've been challenged around that idea is when we had our first child and you go through all the medical family history stuff and my answer is I got no idea mm. and so you kind of think well you know do I have some responsibility to kind of it's like well you know I don't think I do and so it's, what will happen will happen that's right. I've always had the view that if my, if my uh, maternal uh, mother or father made contact, I'd happily, readily. They may be it. trying. Well, if, if, if they were, it's reasonably straightforward. Okay. So, so, so you would know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and that'd be fine. Yeah, I'd, okay. I wouldn't have to do that. But, um, yeah, okay. Oh, you know, because I wouldn't want to deny someone the opportunity. Yeah. If that's something they sought. But I wouldn't want to, you know, crack open... Uh, mm. something for someone and you know we're, we're, we're uh, you know I'm you know, turning 50 this year you know the, the likelihood you know diminishes each 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 couple of years I guess so you never know you never know <laughs> yeah there might be something on the horizon yeah I think um, adoption people can feel really abandoned yeah, and look, I've had conversations with other people whose experiences have been vastly different to mine. Yeah. And I'm, 
deeply sympathetic to some of the things that, that people have felt and, and, and actually gone through. I've only got my own experience and, I, I, and it's been really good and I feel very privileged. Mm. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah. You know, while while you know the, the 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 circumstance of my growing up was financially fairly, oh, I don't want to say impoverished. That that's overblowing. Do you reckon that that financial setback or whatever disadvantage has informed you in some way, or is it just something that happened? I, I, yeah, I don't I don't think I don't I don't want to give it too much credit, really. And I I, I never felt like I needed or, or or wanted anything that didn't come my way you know my, my parents provided the most extraordinarily nurturing environment yeah. for me and bucket loads of love unconditional love. I was a shitty kid <laughs> <laughs> you know really bad and <laughs> I won't ask you for <laughs> no I don't want to incriminate myself but but you know that, that, that idea of unconditional love, you know, you test that baby. <laughs> you know, so I, I think that the, what maybe, so I didn't ski or row or go sailing or, you know, I've never had yeah. those sorts of experiences that are mm. in this country, there are kind of class divisional lines that we don't talk about that have all sorts of barriers. But I, you know, did all kinds of other amazing stuff and mm. met a handful of teachers at high school who taught in art and science who took a bunch of kids a couple of carloads of kids off on camping trips four five six times a year mm. to talk about the bush you know nature and do drawing and talk about life yeah. uh, i think you can't do that anymore but you know they opened my eyes to other possibilities beyond I guess the kind of family bubble mm. um, and that combination of nurturing environment and sense that you could do anything that you wanted to do and having some doors opened about the kind of creative space and you know its validity you know and I'm talking particularly about some, some teachers that I had mm. um, you know th th those are the things that formed me and I feel uh, yeah, I, it, it's kind of perverse in some ways. I've only ever felt privileged. <laughs> mm. You know, growing up in a caravan park is amazing. You, you, you have all these kind of other kids around. You've got a playground. You've got, you know, trampolines that are bigger than anyone else's trampoline in their backyard. You've got, mm. you know, new people coming and going, mm. you know, like... You know, for a youngster, there's all these kind of new pretty girls turning up, and you know, <laughs> and you'd kind of play up, and you'd, you know, like, yeah, for sure. like what a glorious childhood! Yeah. It's like being on holiday all the time. <laughs> Absolutely, mm. right? We Absolutely. should all do it. Um, I'm going to move. So I've decided. No, I, I don't. That's why. That's why I don't think it's that this sort of sense of did did the kind of you know school of hard knocks make me a kind of better you know it's, it's crap it was, it was mm. I had a, a, a normal loving lucky kind mm. of childhood mm. um, what i'm what i'm kind of trying to tease out is whether or not there's a reaction to that rather than you know school of hard knocks well i tell you what it does do and and what it motivates me in in my role and i talk about this 
I guess in, in relation to my interest in leadership, and I, and I have a, a kind of a, a growing interest in leadership and how... That's a pretty interesting we, word that you've used just there. Yeah, and it, it's, it's not about being a boss or a manager or, you know, mm. um, it, it's about how all of us can kind of play a role in leadership. Mm. Um, Obviously, for someone in a kind of senior role in an organisation, it's important to me on a practical you are a leader. Level. But that, to actually, that, that's right. But, yeah. but we, we we do it in many ways, and we help influence it in many ways. And I'm constantly trying to, you know, work at being a better leader. A bit like kind of developing a craft, right? You you learn that there are actually skills, that there are actually kind of things, and you make mistakes. Mm bad ones sometimes mm. and it's a bit like wood turning or something where where you know once you've had to kind of chisel fly off across the room you think well yeah. i won't do that again yeah. <laughs> leadership is just the same and I, yeah. i'm approaching it in that way because that's the yeah. why i know how to approach things right but I, I i guess one of the things that that is, is of most appeal to me about leadership is how you can influence those trajectories for people that 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 rewarding stuff i talk about about people that are involved with this organization and seeing them develop in some ways is the rewarding thing my my belief in the power of the arts and cultural industries to transform people's lives is the thing i'm most interested in using my leadership skills around because that's my story right Mm. that personal transformation that the arts provided for me it's why I so understand the value and importance of the Aboriginal Arts Centre model and movement and the way that you see you know and I'm I'm not going to draw any kind of association between my experience and that experience at all but you see the way that an artistic practice and a kind of vehicle to tell stories to the world through creative practice can change people's lives anywhere, whether it's a remote indigenous community, whether it's a working class kid from northern Tasmania, whoever it is, you know, that that and I you know I think I think that that's why I resisted your initial comments around the middle class pursuit of the arts I guess because it's not because it's not true the preoccupation is absolutely but because in my DNA the kind of story of it is 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 not that and 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 um it's where I kind of come from but you, you kind of yeah how do we how do we make more people aware of those opportunities you know that's and to be transformed you know, my, my, my desire to redevelop Jam Factory as a bigger and better thing with an education centre is not because I'm trying to chase some funding from an education department or whatever mm. it might be. It's because I fundamentally believe that that will create more pathways. And in, at a time when you've got, you know, diminishing kinds of employment options as we automate everything and we, you know, become service economy driven, you know, the, the kind of cultural entrepreneurship and storytelling of the arts is, is going to be so important for any person moving through adolescence into adulthood you know, in a way that, that I think 
is going to be much more important than it has been. I think we've, we've you know, there's, there's a whole deeper conversation to have maybe about that sometime. But, I think um, it's always been important. It has, definitely. I, I think there's a kind of reaction to a um, particular kind of exploitative global economy towards a different kind of global economy. And that's, it's just going to create kind of new opportunities. And I think that, that we want kids to value creativity much more highly because much of what they will need to do will depend on it. Because lots of other stuff we can automate or we can have artificial intelligence take care of for us. But creativity will be our kind of linchpin. <laughs> mm, our legacy. Maybe. <laughs> as, as, as the planet burns and we die out. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably always been a culture's legacy. Yeah, yeah. It's the value of a culture. Interesting. I mean, that, you know, I, I, there's, there's territory. It's nice to have a conversation like this where you, you find yourself kind of thinking or articulating some of those things that you're kind of thinking, you know, mm. in those quieter moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's obviously, as you say, Pat, you're something you're very passionate about. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's any other valuable thing to add on that, but I'm, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't want to bang on more than that on that one. <laughs> no, look, that's fine. I, I reckon that's a great place to end. That's good, though. I mean, I think, I think you know, it, it is a privilege to have spent, you know, 30 years really in a, a, a career that allows me to work with the kind of people who inspire me and get paid for it. And I feel like I'm just getting started. Mm. <laughs> mm. I get that feeling. The fact that you're using this term leadership... That's that's uh, that's a beginning almost, isn't it? it, it yeah, it might be maybe me finally facing the fact that I'm no longer maverick young gun, <laughs> mm. but kind of settling into who I am and being incredibly not content, but self-aware, yeah. self-aware, and understanding more fully what it is that motivates me and what I find rewarding and recognizing that you know you 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 get one crack at this and so why not make it your best Mm. and you're not only making it your best you're helping a lot of other people come along I hope so Mm. I have an extraordinary team of people around me at Jam Factory I think we have an extraordinary community around us in Adelaide and you know we are absolutely hooked into a national and international community mm. around this designer maker revolution, right? Um, mm. Better than a whole bunch of other things we could be doing. <laughs> God, yeah. It's been a really good conversation. Yeah, we went far deeper than I imagined <laughs> I would. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. That's good though, I'm not, you know, it's nice to kind of roll with where the issues take you. Mm-hmm.